As AI continues to revolutionize our world, there's a critical conversation we can't ignore. AI safety and security. And that's where HackerOne's AI red teaming comes into play, rigorously testing AI models to prevent them from being misled or exploited. HackerOne employs over 2 million ethical hackers, and 750 of them specialize in prompt hacking and other AI security and testing. So HackerOne isn't just theorizing, they're actively safeguarding AI's future. Just recently, a team unearthed over 100 vulnerabilities in just two weeks. So whether you're at the helm of a startup or steering product innovation at a large company, it's time to prioritize AI security. Visit HackerOne.com slash AI for more. Again, HackerOne.com slash AI. This episode is brought to you by Gigantic. At Gigantic, you can level up your product skills through live small group cohort-based trainings. We're incredibly excited to welcome you to our next cohort of our product strategy training kicking off in January of 2024. This course will take you through the frameworks that product leaders use at companies like eBay, DoorDash, Groupon, Rent the Runway in order to scale their teams. It's taught by Ben Foster, a friend of this podcast, who is the former chief product officer at Whoop. So come join us. Go to gigantic.is. That's gigantic.is. And save your seat for our January cohort. Your potential is gigantic, and we're here to help you reach it. Go to gigantic.is to reserve your seat today. Welcome to the Rocket Ship Podcast. I'm Michael Saka. I'm Joelle Steiniger. And I'm Matt Goldman. And we're having 20 minute talks with entrepreneurs teaching you how to launch your product into revenue. Check out our book at howtobuildarocketship.com to reserve your launch discount and to download a free chapter. Today we talked with Danielle Morrow, co founder and CEO of Mattermark. Danielle talks all about her past from her early days at Twilio to realizing she was running a zombie startup to now running Mattermark and experiencing more validation than ever before. You'll learn about when the right time is to raise money for your company and which metrics you should be monitoring to know if or when the time is right. Welcome to the Rocketship Podcast. We're here with Danielle Moriel, the founder of Mattermark. Danielle, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. So give us a quick overview of Mattermark. Sure. So Mattermark is tools for investors, uh, corporate development folks and business development people who are looking to understand which startups are growing the fastest based on publicly available signals of growth that they could do business with, acquire, invest in, uh, so give them deal intelligence to help them spend their time on the highest value targets. Very cool. So you have um, quite a fascinating story, kind of how you've landed uh, now at Mattermark. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about um, where you got started? And, and how you got on this path? Sure. So I guess for me, you know, I didn't go to college. And so my story really starts working for my family's business, uh, which is in financial advising. So advising high net worth individuals on where to put their money. And then also advising corporations who were running 401k plans about how to allocate um, those assets so that they would grow that wealth for the people inside those plans. Um, and you know, when you're in high school, you don't really know what any of that means. So my life really began managing spreadsheets for my dad and trying to automate those processes because he's a incredible relationship builder, but he didn't really love doing things on the computer. 
and I was, you know, too nerdy to really go on uh, sales calls with him, but I could certainly automate spreadsheet macros. And that was kind of the beginning of how I learned to code and also just realizing that you didn't have to work for a big company. You could work for yourself. That's really cool. Yeah. And you were the first hire at Twilio, right? Yeah, that was back in um, early 2009. Wow, what was that like? Well, you can kind of, if you can think back to 2009, the stock market had crashed in the previous fall. And um, so I moved to San Francisco pretty shortly after joining the company uh, into Soma. And I, I think it's hard to imagine now just how depressed the economy was, but really like office space was a quarter of the price that it is now. And um, you know, we worked out of Pier 38, which a lot of cool startups came out of. It's now condemned. It's not safe. But um, we worked out of coffee shops. It was this very, very early stage. You know, when I, when I joined, they actually hadn't raised funding as far as I knew. And then the first task I had once they once I joined was to help with the PR around announcing our seed round. So it gives you some sense of just how early the company was at that no point. No way. Yeah. And how, how fast they've grown. Yeah, it's really amazing. So, and then um, you did go through Y Combinator, right? With Referly? Yeah, so I was at Twilio for three and a half years. And then um, after I got back from launching the company's European offices, I went through Y Combinator with Referly, which had been a, a side project of mine for a while while I, was, while I was doing other things, something to keep me fresh with coding. So you uh, graduated Y Combinator with Referly, and I know you worked on that for a period of time. You wrote a while back about zombie companies and why you decided to shut Referly down. Mm-hmm. Um, for people who might not know that term and your philosophy on it, why don't you fill us in? Yeah, so obviously when you work in startups, you hang out with lots of other founders. And one thing that comes up a lot is you've got these friends you're talking to and you kind of know it's not working out, but no one wants to admit that they're dead. So they're kind of walking around dead, but you know they don't know yet. And it's kind of sixth sense-ish. Um, and I just think it's very sad. You know, these people are young and they're smart and they have a lot of skills and um, it's kind of like they're wasting that time away. So I, I really didn't want to do that with my startup. So when it became clear to me that things weren't working, um, we just decided to pull the plug. And I think that was in the face of a lot of metrics that we could kind of rationalize that made us look like we were doing well. But when in reality, if you dug deep into the business and took a step back, you could see it was really not going to work. Um, so what were some of those metrics yeah, so we had um, we had metrics around how much we were able to get people to view and click on our content. Since the business model was around affiliate revenue, you could tie that pretty directly to, um, to, to us making more money. But one of the things we didn't look at was where that was coming from. So it, when, it turned out most of the content that was generating clicks and revenue was content we were producing versus co- content our customers were producing. And the entire model was about having people generate content that would generate revenue um, and we were really the ones cranking the monkey wheel and, and generating most of that. So it's easy to not go down deep enough into the data to really understand, you know, why some number is going up into the right. So you can like convince yourself. It's kind of the same thing as if you're doing paid advertising. You can convince yourself that that traffic is, you know, if you don't look closely, you don't know where it's coming from. It's it's one of those kind of things where after you look at it, you're like, wait, how did we ever not look at this? Um, but there's always something else to paying attention to in a startup. So it's easy to just not look at things that, um, don't, you know, grab your attention and startup people are hopelessly optimistic. So we're not particularly focused on the things that aren't working. Yeah, that's definitely true. <laughs> um, so in, actually in terms of those metrics, um, cause I know you've advised some other companies are there even just like a, 
a revenue growth metric that if you're not growing a certain percent month over month, like you can identify, okay, this is time to cut the cord? Well, it's kind of hard because it's not always revenue. The, The key is you have to have something that's growing that matters. So in YC, they advise you to try to find some metric that you can grow 10% week over week. And of course, YC is dealing with the earliest stage of your company, maybe either pre-launch or just right after launch. But longer term, you know, for us, we want to see revenue growth that's like 10 or 20 or 30% month over month. And the reason is it's not that it's not okay to grow slower. It's totally fine to grow slower. But when you're venture-backed, you probably are running at a loss. So you're going to run out of a runway at some point if you don't grow quickly. And secondly, I think investors really want to see fast growth because it just takes a long time to compound growth to a really big outcome if you're working with really small numbers. So part of it is it's okay to grow very slowly if, you, if no one cares how fast you grow, right? But if you're working on a, on a startup that has raised money from other people, there are expectations about the timeline that you're on. Um, so I think it's most, it's sort of, it has to be in context. So if you're self-funded, you can grow 1% every month. And if like, if you can afford to like survive, then actually long-term, that will be a great business for you. Um, but the expectations are different when you raise money from investors, but revenue is not always the right metric. Um, there are plenty of businesses out there that are pre-revenue for very good reasons because they need to build a network effect. Um, a lot of consumer products have this. And so then other metrics like engagement, um, it can be a lot more meaningful, like how many people, what percentage of your users logged in in a given week or a given month could be more meaningful in that case. Do you guys track like B2C and B2B businesses differently, even inside of Mattermark? We don't track them differently, but we do identify them as being B2B or B2C. And you can use that to filter what you're looking at. So if you were going to compare a set of companies, you would probably want to try to compare apples to apples. So you could certainly use those um, B2B and B2C, in our case, they're tags, to make sure you're comparing um, companies. One interesting thing is that because B2C companies and B2B companies need different things in order to be successful in terms of the volume of people who need to be served, they do naturally tend to have metrics that look different. So web traffic, for example, is generally going to be much higher for consumer product because Mm. the consumer product just like the value of each individual user is much lower than a business product generally. Absolutely. So, I mean, with that kind of talking about raising money, um, what are, are the, the kind of key times that you've seen, uh, when a company should be raising money, um, and, and when they've gotten even the best, um, terms when raising? Yeah. So it's an optimization problem, right? Like the, the first case where you need to raise money is when you don't have any more money. (laughs) Right. So like everyone always is thinking like, how do I get the best possible terms? It's like, it's more likely that you're going to be raising money in desperation than you're going to be raising money in a position of strength. And I always try to tell people that because I think people are always like, how do I get, you know, I don't want a $6 million valuation. I want a $10 million valuation. And I'm thinking you're lucky you have any valuation. <laughs> so I think the first thing is you should raise money when you need it. Um, and the other time to raise money is when, you're not out of money, but you can see very clearly how adding more money to the business would make it grow faster. And it's actually surprisingly hard to find that moment because in the early days before product market fit, adding more money doesn't actually fix anything. Like if you don't know what people want, then it doesn't matter how many people you hire or you know if you don't go find that thing. So it's interesting because 
a lot of the reason that I think startups don't successfully raise is because they don't have one of those two things, like either a very clear like death date in the future or a very clear like coefficient that they could apply to that money that would make it more valuable. Um, and there's some rules of thumb. So for the listeners out there who are like, okay, well, Danielle, it doesn't really help me. Um, so if you have less than three months of runway left, you're in a really weird position because you're going to need that money so badly that you can make some weird decisions and ultimately you're probably going to take whatever deal you can get. And of course, investors know that, right? And it's a negotiation. So the ideal place to be is somewhere between six and 18 months of runway left. So this is like probably the best advice someone ever gave me is like, if you're if you have more than 18 months of runway, you're probably not taking enough risk. And if you have less than six months of runway, you're probably taking too much. So that's why startups raise money every year to year and a half, um, because you, you want to plan. So you want to plan your hiring, you want to plan your product development, you want to hire more engineers, and you want to spend money marketing that product. So you need to kind of think about you know, how much money you're going to spend. So for Series A, generally I think people have to either have you know a million to two million of annual run rate, or they need to have a million or more users if it's a consumer product with that revenue. Okay. Um, just like as a, as like a rule of thumb, or you have to be growing so ridiculously fast in a very very clear market that you just look like a freight train. And those are like the people a, who get the incredible valuations. Really, is the ones that look like freight trains. Like um, in the B two B side, would it be like Slack? Or? Yeah. So Slack uh, Series C that they just raised is a great example of a, a absolute freight train company. Um, Relate IQ, oh, disclosure, I'm an investor in them, I think is another one where it's like you have a very clear competitor, right? So they're right up against Salesforce. Mm-hmm. So that makes the value very clear. If you win customers, you know how much they're worth. Whereas if a space is new and undefined, then it can be a little bit harder, even if you have a lot of growth. So that's when it's really great to have the revenue. Because then you can say, yeah, even though you don't understand what this means yet, there's real money here. So if you're looking to raise, what um, what kind of metrics should you be looking at that aren't the vanity metrics that, that typically are pitched? Yeah. I mean, I would actually say look at those two. Um, okay. So the key about metrics is that they all are connected to each other. So, um, you know, hopefully it's a pipeline. It's like, okay, we get more people to come to our website and then some of those people stay and they sign up. And then of the people who sign up, some of them stay and they're active now the people who are active, some of them are stay and they pay us. And of the people who pay us, some of them stay and keep paying us. So really, if you think about it, like the ones at the beginning, the, the web traffic one, it sounds like a vanity metric, but it's actually extremely important if you're going to have the rest of the pipeline. Sure, so sure. it's more like, how do you craft a story about the life cycle of this person coming in? You know, he's, you know, Joe Nobody finds your site through a friend or, or maybe just like through search and they come to your site and you're trying to tell the story of what happens to that person. Um, I think if you're in B2B, um, very low churn is very important. Um, it's really hard because you don't have a lot of time usually. Uh, you know, maybe you've been operating for a year. So, mm-hmm. you know, churn numbers are a little difficult because people don't necessarily yeah, churn that fast. Yeah. Right. But if you have high churn in such a short period of time, that would be a big red flag. Okay. Um, I think you'd want to see a very clear path um, to selling. So if the product needs to be sold with a human involved, there should be some important discovery and learning that's happened that makes it clear how you, how you sell this product and also how much it costs to sell it. Okay. So like, do you have to have five sales calls that are each an hour long? That's a very expensive sales process. Or do you need to have like one 15 minute enablement call and then everything else is over email? It's a much different process. Right. Right. Um, and that goes to the unit economics question, right? Like, so on one hand you've got this pipeline of people coming in, 
And on the other hand, you have the kind of post first revenue part of the business, which is, you know, is it just really this one guy? Or if, if you go and you sign up on Mattermark, am I going to go get all your friends and all your partners and all your colleagues? And is it a huge upsell opportunity? Like how much value is locked up in each side of each of these people? Mm. Um, and so those are the things that investors are hoping you can under- explain to them. We're trying to tell them the story about why of all the places where they could deploy, let's say it's a $5 million Series A, for example, of all the places they could deploy $5 million, why are they going to get the best possible efficiency on that $5 million with you versus some other company? Was that um, easier for you to convey uh, with Mattermark since you were um, selling to investors even? Did, they, uh, did that make honestly, any difference? selling to investors was sort of the most difficult part because it, most VCs are convinced that their market's very small. Okay. So if anything, it might have been more difficult. But I think on the flip side, we have very clear revenue and like very clear understanding of, of who needs what we, what we offer. So in our case, you know, we can just show them we've got a list of names of all the people in the world that we are going to sell to. And it's just a matter of time mm-hmm. until we win all those customers. It's not a question of like, do they need this product? They're already paying for other things. It's kind of more like the Salesforce example where they're, we're selling against clear um, competitors versus a referrally, which was like the most unstructured thing. Um, so one interesting dynamic that I think founders might be curious about, frankly, like on some level, I hope that every founder stopped listening at this point because I just feel like people worried about all these little details of how to fundraise and it's pretty binary. Okay. Like you either do or you don't. But I mean, one interesting thing is that it used to be that if you were doing B2B, you were really unique because everybody was trying to be the next Facebook. But now everyone's become so skeptical of social media startups and there's so few, you know, huge breakout hits um, kind of on the consumer side that there's just far more startups being started in the B2B side. So I would say all the metrics that you're trying to hit need to be that much higher because you're competing with a much bigger pool of startups. Hey guys, hope you're enjoying the episode. I wanted to take a minute to thank Codeship for sponsoring the show. We've been happy customers of theirs for a very long time. If you'd like to see how we use Codeship to deploy our product Hookfeed, go watch the short video we put together at howtobuildarocketship.com slash Codeship. Enjoy the rest of the episode. Interesting. Can you speak to any... um you know, any of the, the kind of broke, breakout stories that you've seen with Mattermark um, and, and some of the numbers that they've been hitting? Um, well, I mean, I don't know much about their revenue, but I can tell you that several investors have told me, you know, it used to be that you needed to have a million dollars of ARR as a B2B startup to go successfully pitch your Series A, and now you need closer to two. Wow. Okay. So that, and that's come up in different, you know, separate conversations. So I think that's really interesting. Uh, and obviously, like, that helps us think about how we're going to raise our next round. Um, what else do I see? I mean, we started following Slack pretty early and so it's been great to see their traction. And then Mark Andreessen recently tweeted a great slide. I don't know if you guys have this, but, um, basically showing how quickly they had been doubling their active user base. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. And so I think that was really cool. And, and sometimes those things are a little harder to see with B2B companies. You know, you see web traffic, but that doesn't always have the same kind of translation to usage that it does for a consumer product. Right. I think another product that it's been fun to watch take off is Secret on the consumer side. <laughs> That's true, yeah. It's pretty amazing. If you go, like, in Mattermark, we've got this feature where you can compare two companies. And there was this other startup called Whisper. It's the exact same idea as Secret. And there's another one called What, actually. So this whole, like, um, anonymous um, Twitter, basically, is not 
completely unique to, to Secret. Um, but it's fun because people will say like, oh, only people in Silicon Valley are using Secret. But if you actually go and you look at their stats, that's just obviously not true because there's just so many people um, accessing the site. So it's it's fun to be able to take people's common assumptions and then to go look and say that, that this can't be the case. Like there's more here. There's all these secrets, no pun intended, <laughs> that are hiding in plain sight with the data. That you know, It's cool to be able to go see that. Yeah, why do you think that is? I mean, just speculation alone. Um, what makes Secret the winner in that space? Well, I mean, it's honestly early, and I think there could still be a different winner. Okay. Um, but I think the way they're, the reason they're probably winning right now is they've made it addictive. Um, it all, I mean, there's lots of little things about like what I didn't like about Whisper or what, but I can't really say. But I think it's created this mystique that you would expect any... Um, anonymous app has and mm-hmm. um you know it's kind of a classic network effect of friends and then more friends getting added and then being curious and then getting notified about some update and now i see friends um i see posts from people in other states and that makes that shows me that other people are using it um and like i'll have friends who i know aren't in tech join and i think that's cool and kind of reminds me of early twitter actually it's just like it starts out as a tech phenomenon but quickly people are curious so I don't know. We'll see. It's it's early days. I think that if I was starting a consumer, you know, product, it was, still might be really fun to experiment with anonymous messaging. I certainly don't think it's something that you know only exists in one place. Yeah, the the I don't know if it was purposeful press, but some of the stories that have leaked off of Secret um, have been, I, I assume, amazingly viral and and mm-hmm. useful for them in terms of getting signups. Um, there have been a couple in particular, like the woman who wasn't picked up when her right. startup was acquired. Um, that was everywhere for a week. And anyone who hadn't heard of the app but reads tech news definitely knew about it then. And yeah, it's kind of people interesting. People love to be first, right? People yeah. love to know about something before the media does. And so I think that's definitely compelling. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there was, speaking of some, some press, there was a really interesting article, um, No Exit. Mm-hmm. in um, Wired last week. And we talked a little bit briefly before the call about it. Um, but I'd love to, to kind of get your opinion of, of that story and to see if that kind of is, um, how true does that ring with you? Oh, I loved it. I, you know, I wish that had been the script for the HBO Silicon Valley show. Oh, yeah. Because that was much more like what it's actually like. And I actually feel like some of the examples i felt like well they were they following me around because some of those things <laughs> definitely happened to us yeah um my co-founder is actually sitting across the room from me right now and um when we were trying to figure out what to do after referrally we went up we had a company retreat already planned um actually we had a company retreat planned and we hadn't decided to shut down the company yet and i just remember sitting outside in the snow um until we were pretty much completely numb just kind of I don't know, trying to talk about our startups like they were working, but both of us kind of knowing that they weren't really working. And it's just kind of, mm. they were talking about, you know, going off to Tahoe and, and like, I don't know, it just, it felt very much closer to what it's actually like than any of the portrayals of it in like TechCrunch or anywhere else. Like we're not, founders aren't particularly glamorous. Um, and then there's like the funny things where you kind of cringe because you're like, yeah, we totally do that. Like the they're like sleeping in that warehouse with like 20 people or whatever. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I actually was worried after I read that. I was like, Oh man, I think one of my employees might be staying at that place. Like, oh, no. there. like that's not cool. So I totally checked with him the next day and, and he confirmed that that's not the case, but I was quite worried. Um, 
you know, like no one talks about that stuff because it's not particularly glamorous. It sounds really cool as a story later, but it's pretty miserable when you're doing it. Yeah. What I thought was so interesting about the article is that you get so caught up all the time in these stories of people kind of going down the path of raising funding and trying to make their company work. Um, But when they took that step back and really showed what the bigger picture was like um, and the way funding is kind of spread thinly across everyone hoping for that one winner, um, I was actually joking with these guys before the call that to me it was like the Matrix where (laughs) you're going along your day and you're trying to make this thing work and um, you have no idea. You're you're trying to avoid the system, right? You don't want to go work at one of the big companies. You want to be an entrepreneur and if you zoom out, you're actually just a cog in the system yep. in some different way. <laughs> and that's really not talked about that much. Yeah, I think it's, there's a, hmm, so many things I could say about that. I, I agree <laughs> with you fundamentally. I think um, there's a need to sell the dream in order to make, make it so people will still want to do this because it is actually so shitty sometimes that it's pretty important. Like it's kind of like the same thing as Hollywood. Right. You've got all these people who are fighting to be actors and actresses, but like they work in restaurants and they're 30 years old and they haven't made it big still. Mm -hmm. And like, why would people do that? Because you're selling this incredible dream that they want to be a part of. And it's almost worth it to the extent that like being in the scene, even if it doesn't work out, is still better than anything else you could imagine doing. And I think that that story actually kind of captures that a little bit. Um, And that is not necessarily pejorative. It's just. Like we all want to fit in with some group and this just happens to be the hero story that we'd like to have our apply to our lives, I guess. Um, I think a lot of people buy into that, you know, wanting your life and the stuff you work on to be more important than just like a bunch of slide decks that disappear when you're gone. If you work in a big company. Right. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I mean, and also I think another thing that it was cool about that story was that that really is what fundraising is like. You're just cobbling it together. It looks so neat and tidy when you announce your funding later. Um, but it's very rarely that neat and tidy. And, and, you know, no one publishes the percentages of the round that each party did. So, you know, you can say such and such investor led the round, but, like, that doesn't necessarily mean that they, like, organized the whole thing for you while you were busy coding away. You were probably doing the whole thing yourself. Mm. Yeah, it's so true. Um, I think it all... It all hit us <laughs> pretty hard. So I, I love the way that you put that. Um, it's so true. On a, on a kind of another note, I'm just curious. Your, your Twitter um, has been amazing <laughs> lately. Um, I'm it, such good like advice and, and information, especially for founders. Um, I'm curious, what has been inspiring you to kind of um, start, you know, start these kind of Twitter rants, if they will? Yeah. Okay. So a few things uh, have inspired me. One is I think Aaron Levy has the best Twitter account. Um, <laughs> he does. He's and amazing. I kind of yeah. just want to have a better Twitter account than he does. <laughs> so on some level, it's very much just like, I want to one up that guy. He's got a lot more followers than me. So I got some work to do. Um, and then actually, so over Christmas, so every year I take two weeks to go home to see my family in Washington state. And over Christmas, I started, I think I had some drinks. About half the time, if I go crazy on Twitter, it's probably after like a little bit of alcohol. Um, I shouldn't say that out loud, huh? Um, (laughs) So, you know, had a couple glasses of red wine and I was like sitting there thinking about all the stuff that's broken um, with like software development for mobile. And I just, I don't know, unleashed probably 50 tweets. And 
Um, Mark Andreessen started tweeting back with me, and, and I don't know Mark very well. He's an investor in my company, but that certainly doesn't mean that we're close or anything. And it was kind of like validating that someone else didn't think it was totally annoying that I was just like taking over their Twitter feed, and it was, and you know, it happened to be Mark. Um, yeah, I mean, and then he did better. the same thing, and that was really cool. And I just kind of, I'm too lazy to blog these days. My life's just compartmentalized in very strange ways, and I feel like sometimes something just like hits a nerve, like in a meeting or like helping a founder or something. And I just feel like it's so frustrating that I know that it doesn't scale for me to go and like talk to everyone individually. But then I just, there's like, I don't really want to sit down and write cause it feels like work. But if I like sit down and tweet a whole bunch, it just feels like fun. So, um, I don't know. It's, it's quite selfish in a way. Cause it's just like thoughts that are rolling around in my head. And I, I'm always surprised by what people react to. Like I tweeted something about how you should make sure to incorporate in Delaware, which I feel like is, I frankly, it was like such a throwaway tweet and I couldn't even, after I tweeted it, I was like, that was stupid. I shouldn't have said that. And then like 50 people retweet it and they're like, oh really? There's this whole discussion and it just makes me realize that just because I think something is so obvious to founders doesn't mean it's obvious to everyone. And we don't always talk about the beginner stuff. Like no one wants to act like they don't know what they're doing. So we always talk about all this like advanced stuff, like how to optimize your funding round. Like who has that problem? <laughs> no one has that problem. Like people have real problems like franchise tax and, and like payroll tax in California is changing and it's confusing. And like, yeah, it's a boring shit that people are so frustrated by when they're working on their startups. Yeah, that's so true. And I, I found them incredibly refreshing. So <laughs> thank you. Um, I really enjoy it. Informal. So, or or um, I, I could, it, it either validated what, what I was going through at the time or I was learning from it. So don't, cool. don't stop. Yeah. It was, <laughs> they, <laughs> it was inspiring to read um, at the, cool. at the I'm base so glad level. You feel yeah. That way. yeah. You know, yeah. I honestly just think that that's what I want Twitter to be like is I wish a lot of the smart people I w- was following would be, would share more and mm. maybe like, if I do it, then other people will do it. That would be really cool. Yeah, yeah, and to to see people like Mark Andreessen get involved um, and and start to you know in, really in, build a conversation. It wasn't even just you talking. It was it was a whole conversation that formed around it, which was yeah, that was to amazing. Read. Yeah, uh, yeah. I think the thing is that no one is that inaccessible. Actually, like there's this, all this mythology. Like you know, people are really scared of Mark Andreessen. Like he's really cool. He's done a lot of cool stuff, but he's also just a dude with a Twitter account. <laughs> so like, I think that is what, is, what this community can be like. And it's kind of, I think it's one of the best things. So I'm hoping we can like do more with that. Yeah. Yeah. Almost get back to it even. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Um, so what is the, I mean, coming off of referrally starting Mattermark, what is the, I guess one of the biggest lessons that you learned um, from that kind of zombie company into starting Matamark, which has a ton of momentum behind it. Um, what did you do differently? Yeah, well, you know, we thought we, we thought we had been talking to customers when we built Referly, but I think that we underestimated what that actually means. Like we talked to a few people every week and we felt like we were getting customer input and feedback. But the reality is that now we talk to every single person who signs up like we try to get on the phone with every single person who who starts a trial of Mattermark. And that's what talking to customers actually means. Um, you know, we never had product market fit with Referly. We had a lot of buzz and that's really cool, but that wasn't product market fit. Um, and we actually do have product market fit, at least in the venture capital community we do. And I think our method for learning now is much more developed. So we'll, we have a better chance of learning the things we need to know to go into our next markets 
I think with Referly, it was a little more, we thought we were building a product that we wanted to use and that because we were consumers that we, we only needed to consult ourselves. And that's just not true. Um, a kind yeah. of a classic consumer startup mistake to make, to be honest, but we made it. So this time, yeah, we just, we've invested that time. And I think sometimes it feels that you're having 20 phone calls where you're getting the same feedback. But if that takes 20 phone calls for you to kick yourself in the ass and actually yep. fix it, then that's how many you need. So that's how many you'll get. No, that's uh, it. incredibly true. Yeah. Everything else um, that I can say about things we did differently is I think traction is a very clarifying thing because you start to realize people are now relying on what you've built to do their jobs. And so I think a lot of the things we're doing now are completely new from anything we'd experienced before. If anything, I think my experience at Twilio is now much more relevant. Um, you have the sense that you have an obligation to not, to, you know, to not become a zombie because there are people who need this thing and they'll be really disappointed if you stop existing. Um, and so I think a lot of things we're doing now are much more about thinking long-term and really building something that can last forever. Yeah. It's, it's really cool. It's, it's a gut feeling at that point. Absolutely agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's no, metric that you can put there um i can tell you one that you can put there which is if a customer tells you like if you go out of business or you're about to go out of business to call them and they're gonna like finance you that's and it's not i'm not talking about a vc customer like any customer Hmm. that's probably what we had a couple customers early on who put up a significant chunk of money not as investment but as actual revenue so wow. that we could exist. And I think that was kind of when we realized that we really had something. So I would look for things like moments like that where someone's like, you cannot go away. Like, if you're going to exist, I need you to exist forever. Like, I would look for those conversations. Wow. Yeah, that's that's powerful. I love that. And it's so refreshing to hear when you're completely saturated with stories of everyone trying to make an exit. Yeah, I mean, I don't even know why people think about that. Like, who can really think seven years or 10 years in the future for real? Like you can't actually do that. Like maybe in some blurry way, but I think, I don't know the people who think they're going to flip their companies in a year or two are usually just, they're just gone. It doesn't even work anyway. So I just, Mm. it doesn't seem to work. The people who flip their companies usually do it on accident anyway. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Um, This is, has been incredibly um, informative. Um, Where can, can, everyone keep up with you matter mark um and everything that you're doing yeah i think there's two good ways right now i think twitter is probably the best way to keep up with me i've been pretty bad about my personal blog and then for matter mark um on our website we have a free newsletter that we send out every day during the week and we pick the best content we find across the web that is not news so these are like editorial pieces written by vcs or by founders so we kind of curate this selection of reading so if you're a busy person like me and um, you know, you don't want to accidentally find yourself sinking a couple hours into Hacker News in the middle of the day. It's probably the best way to stay connected with Mattermark, and then hopefully we can help you read some really awesome content in the process. Definitely. I subscribe. I would highly recommend it. Thank you. Um, and your Twitter handle, we'll, we'll link oh, to it as well. Oh, my but... full name. Yeah, it's just Danielle Morrell. Two R's. Cool. Two L's. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thanks so much, Danielle. This was great. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Rocket Ship Podcast. If you haven't yet, pop open iTunes and subscribe to be notified of future episodes. We have some really great ones lined up. And while you're there, leave us a review. We really appreciate each and every one of them.